Hey there, this is the Hello Personality Podcast, the place where you'll learn how to use your personality type to live a radically authentic life that ignites your potential and creates positive ripple effects for all of those around you. I'm Leslie McDaniel, and this is season four, episode four, and we're continuing our series of interviews with one person from each of the nine Enneagram types. Today, we're talking about type one, and we'll meet our type one guest in just a minute. But first, let's talk a little bit about what you might want to listen for in this episode. So remember that just like the type eight and nine interviews that we've already had in the previous two episodes, type one is also in the body center of intelligence. This means that ones primarily experience the world through a body-based or a gut-level instinctual knowing. So all body types have unique struggles with the emotion of anger, but anger is also the passion of type one. And as type ones do their inner work to deconstruct their personality-related patterns, they begin to experience serenity, which is the virtue of type one. If you're unfamiliar with what a passion or a virtue is and what that means, you can check out season two, episode three, in which I go through the passions and the virtues for all nine Enneagram types. So in this episode, we're welcoming a type one guest. Her name is Christy Ryder. Christy studied sociology at California State University, San Marcos, and she's been a small group facilitator and volunteer in her church for over 25 years. Christy has lived up and down the state of California from Carlsbad to Trinidad and is currently living in Walnut Creek for the second time. She lived in New Delhi, India with her family for four years as an American diplomat, and she deconstructed and reconstructed her faith and spirituality in her 30s and 40s. And she enjoys taking online classes and learning at the Center for Action and Contemplation. She's been married for 28 years to her college sweetheart who works in law enforcement. She has raised four wonderful humans and is currently enjoying the revolving door years. In 2019, after working at a tech startup, she decided to fulfill her dream of becoming a coach. And within one year, she completed her certification in transformational coaching at Western Seminary and became an ACC ICF certified coach. Christy is now a PCC ICF certified life coach and a certified Chestnut Pius Academy Enneagram practitioner. She loves working with the Enneagram, meeting friends for coffee, polyvagal theory, hiking in the Sierras, kayaking in the mountain lakes, spending time with her kids, playing cribbage, and traveling with her husband. So Christy and I were both part of CP Enneagram Academy's professional certification training, as I just mentioned, and that's how we're connected. Christy's subtype is self-preservation type one, and this subtype may be the most one-ish type one of all three subtypes. This season, we're talking about the intersection of the Enneagram and emotional intelligence, and this will include each type's strengths and struggles when it comes to personal competence, which includes self-awareness and self-management, and also social or relational competence, which includes the ability to be socially aware and to manage social interactions and relationships. If you want more information about these aspects of emotional intelligence, be sure to check out episode one of this season where I go into more detail. 
So as you listen to my conversation with Christy about her journey to finding her Enneagram type and her relationship to some of these aspects of emotional intelligence, be sure to listen for her awareness of her own patterns, how she responds to them, and what she's learned by being on an Enneagram growth journey. Keep in mind that Christy has been so generous in her willingness to be interviewed and to open up about her struggles and her growth. Being vulnerable, open, and authentic about her growth journey takes a lot of courage. So thank you so much, Christy, for being a guest. Whether or not you're a type one, I encourage you to use this interview as an opportunity to notice how you respond to what Christy shares. All types can learn from her experience, and this is one of the big reasons I like to bring guests on the show. So use this opportunity to not only learn about the type one and the type one's relationship to emotional intelligence, but also to practice the skill of self-observation. And if you can, take notes on what happens in your body, your heart, and your mind as you listen. In other words, what sensations do you have in your body? What emotions or feelings are sparked by what she shares? And what thoughts come up? Notice which answers to those questions come quickly and which are a struggle. Being curious about yourself without judgment will grow your self-awareness, which is the first step toward increasing your own emotional intelligence. All right, I'll be back at the end of the interview for some more thoughts, but let's go ahead and dive in with Christy. Hey, Christy, welcome to the Hello Personality podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today about your journey with the Enneagram and your relationship to emotional intelligence. Thanks so much for being here. Leslie, thanks for having me. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. And I'm curious about first how you came to the Enneagram, if it was like the Enneagram that piqued your interest first, or if it was a journey of self-discovery, like how did you come across it? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, it's been about 10 years since I discovered the Enneagram. And um, I would say it was a real slow roll into it. Um, I was reading a blog by one of my favorite authors at the time, and she mentioned how helpful the Enneagram had been in her life. And um, immediately I was, you know, my curiosity was piqued and I thought, Enneagram, like what's the Enneagram? I need to know. So I, uh, you know, Googled it and, you know, got a little bit of an idea what it was. And I ordered my first book um, and it was the one by Richard Rohr. Um, and so, yeah, once I got it, I just read it front to back and um, I was ready for it. I lived in New Delhi, India at the time, and we had been there, we arrived in April 2012. And um, I was looking back through my orders because I wanted to know when should I order that book? And it was November, <laughs> 2013. So mm. it's like right in that fall, you know, after three or four months of being in India where my life was really um, just, I was hitting a wall with being able to manage my emotions. Um, I was feeling mm. really angry and mm. probably disappointed, but mostly angry. And um what I remember about that time is I was leading a small group for my church and we were going through, um, I think it was the book of Peter. And I'm pretty sure Peter says something about not being angry. You know, that was, you know, one of the studies we're doing. And I just 
you know, told the group, I'm, I'm just so angry. I feel really mm-hmm. angry and I'm having a hard time. And um, that was my prayer request every week. Um, as a leader of this group, you know, I'm so angry. I don't want to feel angry. I need this resolved. And um, so when I read Richard Vore's book, you know, immediately I was like ready for all of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like it was a, a major life transition that you had. First of all, you're in this new country and also a recognition of the emotion of anger that you were feeling that led you to the Enneagram. Is that feel true that's for you? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. And it was like that anger was just so present and, you know, I could feel it. I knew it. It was really disruptive and I had no, I had really no sense about it except that I was angry, you know, mm. um, my husband got the brunt of the the blame for the anger. Um, but looking back, I can see there were so many other things going on. Yeah. Yeah. And for the person listening, uh, if you might remember, anger is the passion for type ones, um, which is what Christy's describing. So I'm curious when you think about anger, you said you, you weren't really sure other than just feeling it. Um, did you have any sense of what that anger was about? And I'm also curious of like, how did you respond to the anger when you felt it? That's a good question. Um, yeah, at the time, you know, the transition from, you know, moving my four kids and family from Carlsbad, California, um, which is just a small, beautiful coastal community, you know, that we lived for six years. It was just such a big transition and um i guess i was just underwater in terms of knowing how to get by you know in this new land um i everything was new um you know i had to figure out so many new things like getting a taxi and getting somewhere through a taxi Mm -hmm. with a stranger i don't know and you know where do i buy milk and how do i take Mm -hmm. care of my kids and So I think in general, I was overwhelmed with those things, but not totally sensing that I was overwhelmed because I tend to be a problem solver. I get things done. Um, I I make a way, I find a way. I I don't often just lose it and, you know, collapse into this a puddle of, I don't know. (laughs) So (laughs) I think I I was just running on, um, you know, on just, probably running on empty, doing all the things and feeling the strain of my husband's new job. Um, he was gone a lot traveling and it took a long time to, to ramp up in it as it does with new jobs. And, you know, the stress that all of that took on him, the toll that it took on him definitely impacted me and um, maybe where before I could just cope. And, you know, I had my friends and other things, you know, it was really, um, I was just sort of left on my own. It felt like, like I was alone and I would need help and he wasn't there to help me and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Is that, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer. Just looking for kind of like what your experience was like. And it sounds like, at least from what you're saying, I hear a little hint of maybe, the sense of responsibility that ones feel and the sometimes the resentment too of carrying the load 
uh, for so many things. Um, does that resonate with you? Yes, that does resonate with me. Um, I definitely tend towards being over-responsible, um, responsible to over-responsible. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think that really worked for our family as I was raising four kids and mm-hmm. um, taking care of, you know, all the things, um, you know, that, that actually works really well for a family to get things done. Yeah. And, um, but it, it does come at a cost. Um, but yeah, it yeah. does. The resentment does show up. Um, it definitely shows up. So. Yeah. So that, that's part of self-awareness is knowing that you're angry, right? But you just mentioned that the resentment does show up. I think from what I've understood, a lot of times ones don't understand that their anger is actually leaking out and that other people see it. Uh, they might see the resentment or the frustration. Is that true for you? Maybe you weren't aware that others were aware that you were angry? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think my immediate family would say, yes, we know that she's angry. Um mm-hmm. Yes, the resentment leaking out, the way that I might say that, I think this is connected, is that I always feel like people can read me, you know, like I can't Mm -hmm. keep my emotions in or, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm upset, people know it. I can't hide it. So I I do think that's part of it. Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. So when you discovered the Enneagram, and you eventually landed on type one. I'm curious of like what that process was like. Was it really hard for you to say I'm a one or was it immediately obvious to you? Um, And then also identifying that you were the self-preservation version or a subtype of one. How was that process? Yeah. So I read Richard Rohr's book um, cover to cover. And as soon as I read type one, I was like, yes, that's me. Mm-hmm. You know, like the anger piece. I don't think we get too many times in our lives where something is so obvious, you know, we're like, I was literally telling my friends, you know, I'm angry, please pray for me. I'm angry, mm-hmm. you know, and then to read that anger is part of being type one, a perfectionist. It like, it just all started to make sense to me. Uh, I mean, like right away it clicked. Um, I don't know if I would have called myself a perfectionist um, mm. before that. That part didn't resonate as quickly as just the anger part. Um, yeah. 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 And then subtype discovery came much later when I um, studied with CP Academy and dove into subtypes with them. I didn't even know what those were until then. So yeah. that was about. 2020. It's only been three years since I've been working with that. Yeah. So, you know, I asked you about the anger and, you know, whether or not other people knew you were angry. Um, ones have this defensive mechanism of reaction formation, which is often where if they feel anger, then they might actually turn it around and feel something or like smile or come across as pleasant because a lot of times ones feel like anger is a bad emotion or it's not acceptable or it's not okay. So I'm curious about your relationship to that. Is it, have you found in the past when you were angry that you will turn it around to a smile and you kind of repress the feeling of anger? Yeah, 100%. Of course, I didn't know what I was doing and you know how that really looked at the time. But as I reflect on that, um, my Christian faith has been a big part of my life since I was 18 years old. 
and there's teaching on anger, you know, like mm-hmm. that it's not a good thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. that it, it's, I don't know if it actually says it's sinful, but um, it's definitely not something that you are going to be revered for, you know, as being an yeah. angry person. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think, you know, that layer of that spiritual layer, you know, really lent to like hiding it or trying to pretend it's not there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wouldn't have known that I was, you know, smiling instead of being angry. Um, but I can see myself, you know, just maybe trying to see the bright side of things or having to have some hope in it or trying to turn it around a little bit. So, um, yeah. 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 It's so easy to internalize that anger is not okay because it's not, you're not being a good person or a good Christian or um, yeah, that you're always supposed to be nice. I think it also as a woman, that's an internalized Mm -hmm. message. Like, why aren't you smiling? Those types of things. Right, right. Oh, that's a really great point being a woman. And also, um, I'm married to a type nine. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I look back over the years of our marriage, you know, when I would be angry or show my disappointment or, you know, talk about something with a, you know, a voice that sounds angry, but I'm not yelling, but it just does sound angry. That that would be a hard thing for my husband to cope with, you know, that felt offensive or front, you know, or not good. And so there's also that layer too with him on whether it was okay to express anger or not, or how I expressed it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really true. I think, I think anger is threatening to a lot of people. Um, I think even myself, when I experience a really angry person, you know, it, it can feel dangerous in some ways. So mm-hmm. I think that further um, helps people who have, who struggle with expressing anger, internalize it. It's not okay, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It feels threatening or maybe a little yeah. out of control. The other thing I want to say about anger with, my Christian faith as a backdrop is maybe the, the other side of the coin of um, being like judgmental or like angry at Mm -hmm. other people who aren't as adherent to their faith as they should be, or, you know, people who aren't doing, you know, what, what they should be or the right thing. Um, And even experiencing within my faith, you know, my, my church at the time or my community, I've been in lots of different churches um, that that kind of anger might be okay, actually, you know, some judgmental mm-hmm. anger mm-hmm. or some irritation mm-hmm. or annoyance with the other people, whatever, whoever the others were. Totally. So that's kind of interesting, actually. Yeah. Some self-righteousness around that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like yeah. we're doing it right and you are not. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been talking about anger and your recognition of anger and relationship with anger, um, which would all fall in that under that category of self-awareness and understanding and even you requesting prayer for, for your anger, even though you don't, didn't know what it was about necessarily. But I'm curious about your relationship to some of the other emotions. Um, what What's your connection to, uh, yeah, your other emotions and feelings besides anger? Yeah. Are there any others? okay next question (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the other uh emotion that i have 
am really familiar with, but wasn't didn't understand the role that was playing in my life is fear. And that has to do with um, my self-preservation mm-hmm. instinct, dominant instinct. Um, I didn't know that's what it was. And in fact, I wasn't really understanding of fear and anxiety in my life until I studied with CP Academy and, and really um, became aware of fear in my life. Um, I've since in the last three years worked with a therapist who um, did a lot of work on helping me feel my feelings. And Mm -hmm. since I've done that work, I have been able to experience a much bigger variety of feelings than just anger and fear. You know, I experienced joy and happiness and sadness. Um, And what I've learned about anger, a lot of times what's underneath anger is sadness. Yeah, exactly. Anger, (laughs) yeah, anger comes out first. And so it's been a real, it's been a real joy in this journey to get to the, the bottom of anger and allow that sadness to to come out and manifest. And I can say yeah. that makes me sad. And you know what, that's a much truer conversation for me to have with myself and with other people to say, I'm actually, I feel really sad about this. You know, that's, mm-hmm. it seems like it's a, a better invitation for a conversation with my husband or friends or, you know, that instead of saying I'm angry, you know, which is very off-putting and, you know, defenses go up, I can now say, you know, actually, I'm just really sad about this and talk about what makes me sad. Yeah. So. Yeah. I love that. I think, you know, thinking about anger and sadness, I agree with you. I think a lot of times sadness is the root of anger. Um, I think anger may be the go-to a lot of times because in some ways it's more empowering um, it's almost like, it seems like it empowers a person to like, I'm going to make a change or, or I'm going to change this thing. Or I don't know. It just seems like it has that energy behind it. Whereas mm-hmm. sadness can feel really disempowering. Um, mm-hmm. you know, not always obviously, but I'm just noticing, it seems like a bit of a pattern that maybe that's why anger can be the go-to at times. What do you think mm-hmm. about that? Yeah, and I agree with you on your assessment about anger being empowering and sadness being disempowering. Um, anger, you know, if you're angry, you're really not going to fall off the 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 earth, you know, into a collapse. Mm-hmm. You don't. Mm-hmm. You're not angry and collapse. You're sad and collapse. Um, and so sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that that's kept me from depression and you know a lack of mobility or moving forward um and i think that anger is connected to being a body type um mm-hmm. all, all the body types eights nines and ones have you know anger as one of their core issues just dealing with it differently and then as a one anger is the passion of my type you know mm-hmm. and and so um yeah, I think it, it definitely has kept me moving forward. I don't know. I don't, uh, it's not a conscious choice, you know, to choose to be angry. Um, it just, it just is. And there is a lot of what I call go and anger, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's a forward response and movement with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
So as you've done this work to get more in touch with your other emotions and to feel them, has that helped you to grow in self-compassion? Uh, and also to, I guess this is a two-part question, first of all, grow in self-compassion and gaining acceptance for all versions of you or all of your emotions. And I'm also curious if this awareness has helped you to be able to manage the emotions better. And in, in other words, like to pause and reflect on why you're feeling what you're feeling and then to make like more conscious decisions about what you want to do with it or what you don't want to do with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. All of that does make sense. Um, so self-compassion. Yeah. I'm still working on that, but yes. Um, <laughs> that beginning time with the Enneagram, I mean, I really didn't do a lot with it for seven years. Um, compared to the last three years, but it did give me an understanding of like why I'm angry, you know, that there's this, you know, that something is not right or it's not perfect and I'm disappointed. And so that alone, I mean, even in my, my small understanding gave me some new language to talk about something with, you know, with my, with my husband, you know, it's, that's mm -hmm. generally who I felt anger with much, much harder with friends. But, um, you know, that, that was helpful. And, you know, moving on into the, the last three years as I've been working with the Enneagram as, um, as a, as a tool for all of the self-discovery and transformation, um, I do have more self-compassion for myself and it comes out in just being able to talk about like, you know, where I'm at, what, what made me angry or what made me resentful and how I'm feeling. And it's almost like I, I don't feel shame about it, you know, mm -hmm. and I kind of like holding myself out there and just looking at, it, you know, like, Oh, that's interesting and getting curious. And, and yeah. I think it really helps my, my husband understand me too. I think he appreciates that I own my anger and my resentment, mm -hmm. you know, that it's, it's, I'm more comfortable talking about, it. I mean, sometimes I'm not, you know, and it just hurts, you know, the defenses go up, but uh, more often, especially if I'm discovering it for myself to share, <laughs> yeah. it does make it easier to talk about because I'm not a bad person. This is just like, this is just how I see the world. This is just how I'm processing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that seems to be, you mentioned you're not a bad person. That seems to be a, an underlying belief or, uh, you know, motivation for ones, I see you nodding, <laughs> of <laughs> their, their um, pursuit toward perfection or rightness or correcting wrongs in themselves and others. Is that, it seems like that resonates with you? Yeah, it, it does. It really does. Um, the self-preservation one is the one that perfects themselves. Um, yeah. The sexual one is the one that perfects others or teaches others. And sexual is my second instinct. And I definitely see that come out in my family or with other people that I know familiar with. But that perfecting myself and trying to be good is really the theme of my life. Um, mm. And so, yeah, when I'm spending so much energy and time perfecting myself, um, I mean, that's a heavy load to carry, even showing up to this. Mm interview i was feeling like i've got to be perfect i've got to know everything i've got to know everything about emotional intelligence you know i have all this pressure i put on myself to know things and to um to be capable and you know that's a lot that puts a makes me really you know puts a lot of stress on me makes me really stressed out and i'm 
there's no way you can be, or I can be the person I want to be in that dysregulated state, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's really, I was going to say this, I don't, we'll just put it out there and maybe we can talk about it, but it's, it's perfecting and feeling imperfect is really a dysregulated state and nervous mm-hmm. system state, right? It's this, mm-hmm. um, it's a stress state. It's a fight response to not being perfect, you know, that there's something wrong and that has to be made right. And for one, that just, I mean, that can be everything, you know, me walking into the house, into the living room and, you know, I see the blanket that didn't get put away and the pillows are a mess and, you know, um, walking into the kitchen and there's dishes out, you know, you just see everything. It's just, it's always this, um, this dysregulated state that things aren't right. I need to make them right. Mm -hmm. I'm angry that they're not right. You know, why can't things be perfect? Because when they're perfect, then I feel good. I feel calm. I feel like I feel peaceful. And I think that's, that was the limited thinking that I had before I understood the Enneagram is that if everything was perfect, if my husband acted perfectly, if the house was clean all the time and organized, um, then I would have peace inside myself. And that was true. Sometimes I did, you know, I did experience that peace, Um, but it was never lasting. And my poor husband could never be perfect enough for a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. if it's, you know, if he gets one thing down, then we're going to move on to the next thing and we're going to move on to the next thing. And, and that's, that sounds like a living hell. So um, that's a little picture into one's life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the you talked about being peaceful inside and, and searching for that, the, you know, the virtue of one being serenity. I think it's a false sense of serenity that ones are after in trying to perfect things. Um, right. And then recognizing the, the true serenity by releasing all of that. Right, um, right. Just want to reflect a little bit back to you, you know, you and I met a little bit before this interview to kind of chat about things. And I noticed today when you came on, I sensed, I felt that you seemed very calm and I don't know what's going on inside of you, but you seemed more calm and grounded and, um, you know, a willingness to show up and kind of be yourself and let things be, um, that I really appreciate. So I just am reflecting that back to you that I'm noticing that. And I, I, I'm sensing that it's different than when we met before. Yeah, I appreciate that. I've certainly worked through all the other feelings before <laughs> and I wanted to show up in that place. And I know that that's possible. Um, since I've been working with the Enneagram as a transformational tool, I experience being grounded now. I experience yeah. serenity. I experience peace that's completely outside of my house being organized and my husband Mm -hmm. being perfect. And so I know it's there and I look for it for sure. Yeah. That's really beautiful. So I also wanted to go back to, you mentioned others and having your sexual instinct second. And of course, sexual ones are the ones who reform others or want to correct others, teach others, Mm -hmm. um, make others perfect, I guess you you could say. Uh, So I'm really curious about, your relationship to other people and other people's emotions, what other people bring towards you. Cause I would assume if you have really high expectations for yourself and, you know, some, a lot of rules about what's right and wrong, 
and constantly making that evaluation that that would have to transfer to other people too, in a way. So I'm curious, like, yeah, yeah, if we can talk a little bit about your, what we might think of as social awareness with emotional intelligence. Awesome. This one's might be a little bit harder for me. So um, let's yeah. go for it though. Um, yeah, I, you're really right about that. All the, the pressure I put on myself to be good and to be perfect, um, it transfers out onto other people. I think a lot of times others don't know it. They might sense it, you know, like that I might be a little on edge or maybe a little controlling, but that's forgiven in, um, you know, in what a good friend I can be to people. Mm. And I say that, you know, like a little bit, like you can't see me <laughs> but just saying that out loud. But I, when I've been reflecting to my friends, this inner work that I've been doing, um, the feedback I'm getting from my friends is, you know, you're a great friend. We really, you know, we appreciate you. You're being hard on yourself. And, um, and so that, that's been healing to hear that in the mix of, you know, the expectations and where I know I struggle, that um, I'm also a good friend, that I, I value that. Um, I value friendships. I have a lot of friends. And, um, but I think what they don't know, um, and this is more past than present, but what they didn't know was that I was waiting or knowing that the hammer would fall at some point where somebody would disappoint me or do something that I would disagree with or didn't feel right, or maybe even made me feel distrustful of them, or maybe they asked too much of me. And mm -hmm. instead of being able to say that's too much or have a boundary, I would feel resentful. And it's like, it's like that building pressure. I knew it was there and I could, I know what happens. You know, I've um, had experiences where, you know, friendships have, have been broken through that or they've gone through a hard time. And um, so, yeah, just anyway, feel it, that feeling inside of myself. Like I know that that's possible and that's probably coming. And I have no idea how to stop it or to change it, you know? Um, so the impact that I have on others generally is very good. Um, because I'm a good person. <laughs> I follow rules and I try not to take up too much space. And, um, you know, if I'm hosting someone in my house, I take care of all their, you know, the details. They've, you know, got a, a cozy place to stay and the food is good. And um, mm -hmm. that goes along with my self-preservation instinct. I create a very nice holding environment. Um, and on the other edge of that, might be control. Um, and I think people can feel that, you know, my family yeah. especially feels that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It also sounds like, I mean, that I would say that's probably at great expense for you too, because you're whatever you might be feeling personally or experiencing, it's kind of, it sounds like it's kind of pushed down in order to create that quote, perfect experience or yeah. lovely experience for others. Yes. And, you know, I appreciate you reflecting that back to me, Leslie. And I feel emotional mm -hmm. um, just as I experience those words because, yeah, 
a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fear. You know, what will people think if they really know me? And oh my goodness. Um, you know, the times when I just couldn't get past like what the right way to be is or the right thing to do was with people yeah. that I've loved, it's caused, you know, it's caused a lot of problems. You know, yeah. it's, um, it's hurt people and it's broken friendships, you know, that were really valuable to me. So there's a lot of pain. pain yeah. There. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I mean, from my perspective, I feel like the more authentic self is underneath those things. Um, you know, I don't, uh, no offense, I would call it a front, you know, of some sort. I mean, yeah. I have it too, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, I think we all do in a way. Um, but the front that's put on to try to create the perfection. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts about that as far as like, does it feel like, or do, do you recognize an um, a sacrificing of your more authentic self in some of the personality patterns that impact you? Yes, I do. I mean, especially with the anger. I mean, it's really difficult to have challenging conversations with people, you know, that you mm -hmm. love, much less people you don't know as well, and trusting that they're going to understand, you know, where you're coming from and care about that and, and you know, want to be compassionate to you. Um, that's not our general experience. Um, it's interesting, probably from my, my faith experience, I do value authenticity so much um, mm -hmm. and have felt that I'm generally an authentic person. I do share my flaws, you know, with people and, you know, what's difficult and challenging. And I know that that's pretty, that's pretty well received. But what I've noticed as I've gotten deeper in my inner work is that actually what I think is very authentic is just scratching the tip of authenticity, mm -hmm. you know, that. I come into things that are like deeply humiliating and deeply personal where I'm like, Oh, that's so, <laughs> mm. that's so much, you know? So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. Just the, the levels of authenticity, you know, yeah. um, yeah. recently I've been practicing hospitality in my home, which I've lived here for seven years now. And it's a home that was built in 1955 and hasn't had much work done to it, hardly any, um, in the last probably 40 years. And I mean, we painted it, but when we landed back, we landed in the Bay Area, which is really expensive and mm -hmm. money was tight. And kids are in college. So it's just less than, than perfect, <laughs> which probably <laughs> most things are, but it's really like, it really hits a, a shame spot, a shame place for me, a vulnerability mm -hmm. to have people in my home and especially in such a, a wealthy area to see like, I don't know, to see inside my home, you know, that I have mm -hmm. regular, you know, regular furniture and, mm -hmm. um, you know, my bathrooms are old and I don't know, that's really hard for me. Um, and so recently I've been practicing hospitality in a more generous and open way that is kind of, it's going beyond all that and just saying to my friends who are staying, see, I'm glad you're here. Mm. Here's what it is. And we're going to have fun in, you know, in spite of what I think is a problem. Um, and yeah. I am slowly healing from that. I can feel myself 
relaxing and being more comfortable with people being in my home. And that's and actually really vulnerable for me to say that to you. So I, I'm sure I'll be thinking about that later. But um, that is a real practical application of this. Yeah, yeah. I actually really love that because I think, yeah, it, it demonstrates growth for a one from my perspective of like the releasing of those, um, the way it has to be being a little more go with the flow and just being more present as you shared and mm -hmm. showing up, um, allowing yourself in all, whatever it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis to be seen by others. Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. It's okay to not have it all together. And, you know, just that, even that sense of perfection that I have, which I don't call it perfection. I just call it being enough yeah. is it's just ridiculous, you know, mm -hmm. that, I'm thinking that my guests have to have, you know, really good meals and, you know, that I'm doing all the work and I mean, it's just so much work and then hardly satisfying when you still don't feel like it's enough, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's my new practice is just letting people come in and being okay, not apologizing for anything. Um, I leave dishes in my sink now, which I could never do before, mm -hmm. um, little by little. <laughs> yeah. And perhaps it's just you that they really want. And these other things are um, a substitute for being enough. If you don't feel enough yourself, then maybe you can make everything outside, everything in your house enough. Does that resonate? Yeah. Does that, yeah. Yes. That word enough is like, it's everything to me. Um, the most healing thing I can say to myself in any moment is I am enough. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of settles everything. And I feel emotional even just saying that um, yeah. I am enough. Yeah. 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 What's the emotion about, do you think, if you're willing to share? Hmm. I think it's. Um, 49, it's, you know, the 40, I don't know, 49, 48 years of, you know, trying to be enough and wanting to be enough and, um, you know, wanting to be perfect so that I would be okay and life would be okay and it would all feel okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it. So when I say I'm enough, you know, right here in this present moment I am enough I have enough all is well it's um it's a beautiful feeling it's serenity really yeah that serenity absolutely. really attached to that mm -hmm. yeah and what I mean you kind of just shared a little bit about that about being enough but I'm curious of what has the Enneagram like understanding yourself through the lens of the Enneagram being a type one what has the Enneagram taught you about being enough as you are right now, right here? Mm. Now, I'm not sure if the Enneagram has taught me this. It's definitely been part of the process. I think actually the Enneagram has been the the path to finding mm -hmm. myself to be enough. Um, that I believe deep, you know, deep down, you know, this work that we're doing is really a collapsing within. It's, it's, unmasking the false self, you know, mask by mask by mask mm -hmm. to get to the heart of who we really are, which is good and yeah. enough and worthy and loved. And I think 
my biggest learning and understanding with the Enneagram is it's that's the path to it. The, the Enneagram shows me what my mask is, what I'm, you know, what, mm-hmm. what that false self is made of, you know, what, what I'm running on and uh, what's fueling me and um, what's motivating me. And so it's like, I just have this whole language to, um, to interpret my world, you know, to like create a, a map of my psyche and understanding to, again, to, like peel back those layers or just to kick them to the curb. And, um, and that's, that's how I found, you know, this, this enough place, this enoughness. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'll reiterate, I also believe that you are enough. And I mm-hmm. really appreciate, you know, all of your vulnerabilities. I mean, it's really hard for the people who come on here, we're talking about the Enneagram is not easy to talk about if you've done a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> simple to talk about your patterns and yet you're you are sitting here being vulnerable you are being open and honest and authentic and um you know i really appreciate that and i think the listener does too so um we appreciate you just being yourself and sharing what you've gone through we all have we all have patterns of some sort um and so i am part of what i'm hoping for people to see and witness and experience from you in this interview is you know the work that you've done and and uh, what's on the other side you know obviously you're not fully there none of us will arrive mm-hmm. so to speak like it's a lifetime of work but what's mm-hmm. available and possible for one specifically in this this conversation if they yeah. open themselves up to doing the work and releasing some of the um deconstructing i guess we can say some of the patterns that cause you to cover up the the goodness that's already in there Mm, yeah i i appreciate that so much um yeah to the listeners um it's really worth it to do this work it's hard work and it's a lot of sifting and analyzing and um you know it can be it can feel like it's never ending but i think if you come into it like I did, you just you just want to do the work because you're just so sick of the way things have been. You know, you want something different. I really wanted to have a better relationship with my husband. Um, I mean, he's he's my main person in this world, and if I can't have peace in, with him and peace in my home, then what good is anything else? You know, um, and with my kids, it's just been a really big shift in my family. Um, my kids are still surprised that I'm not more stressed out or, you know, that I'm not, you know, they're like almost bracing themselves. You know, I was just with my, my 20 year old son helping him with his wisdom teeth extraction in Santa Barbara. And um, he kept saying to me, like, are you stressed? You're stressed. You're stressed. I'm not. I'm totally good. Mm-hmm. I'm just taking moment by moment as it comes, and I know it's all good. Um, so, yeah, this work is totally worth it. And what I love about one's work, and I didn't know this until I, I did my certification with CP Academy, is that one's work is the best work, it's the funnest work. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have more fun, prioritizing mm-hmm. fun in the day and relaxation is like, that's the work, you know, that's the beginning work. And 
I started doing that, prioritizing. I'd sit in my hot tub. COVID happened right after I um, took a, a five-day workshop and I knew what I needed to do. And so every morning I would sit in the hot tub for an mm-hmm. hour and float and um, just, you know, allow myself to slow down and life slowed down anyway. Um, nobody was coming over. That was helpful. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So having fun, you know, prioritizing that, that's a big deal for one. That's a big deal for anybody in this um, achieving success oriented culture um, to make that like the priority for the day. That's a good, that's a good thing. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, that work at the arrow point for that, the work of having fun is that arrow point seven and um, uh, arrow point four has just been amazing to delve into my past and my background and to see where, you know, where this, these patterns really took hold in my life and why they're there. And that's really helped me. Um, well, that's helped me with a lot of self-compassion actually. And, you know, when I can tell other people that are tell my husband that there's, there is a lot of compassion there. You know, when I was seven months old, my mom got pregnant with triplets and she mm-hmm. thought we're twins. And I already had a, bro- I have a brother who's three years older than me. And so I was 16 months old when um, triplets were born mm-hmm. in a family that maybe wasn't so stable and didn't have money. And there's no family around. And I asked my mom one time when I started realizing the age that I was when the triplets were born, I said, how, how was that for me? I must have been left behind. And, you know, obviously (laughs) I thought having one other child was, you know, a child was hard. And she said, no, Christy, it was great. You were my helper. You Mm -hmm. would get the diapers and you would get this and that. And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) And you can see that responsibility that I was already taking on at 16 months old, you know, and just start seeing where these patterns come from, you know. Um, yeah, and I was six years old, um, when my parents divorced and there was a lot of chaos and instability in my own world, um, as my mom was our primary caregiver for five kids and working Mm -hmm. full time. Um, yeah, I was, I was hyper responsible. I'm sure I was helpful for her and that's how I kept my world together. You know, that's how I didn't fall apart. I had so much anxiety I wasn't aware of. and. I think I kept that anxiety at, bo- at bay by, you know, having everything, you know, really squared away and, you know, being in a, just a small box of, you know, here's my world and here's how I do it. So yeah. I'm so grateful for the Enneagram to show me this path of transformation. And my Christian faith talks about transformation and, you know, the spiritual part is so important to me, um, but it doesn't tell you how to get there. So Mm -hmm. like my friends praying for me, for my anger to go away and to not be angry um, or even to wish it, you know, just to wish it away. Um, One of my dear friends, Pam, you know, when I reflected this with her later on about this, she said, I just kept thinking, just stop being angry. Just don't be angry. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like, there's no pathway to breaking apart that anger and resentment, but the arrow paths are incredible. Um, Having fun, being irresponsible. Um, letting go of things, getting a little bad. I was like, that's how it's done. That's the practical work for it. Yeah, absolutely. 
I was going to comment on the, uh, you know, your sense of responsibility growing up in your household and all that. And I think it's important for all of us to realize sometimes, not always, uh, sometimes we're praised for our patterns, <laughs> our ego yeah. patterns. Um, you know, if, if they are serving the situation or serving other people or, you know, there's a lot of reasons why um, we can actually be appreciated for those things. So it doesn't always mean that it's good <laughs> or helpful, right. Um, right? you know, so I totally, I, that makes sense that you had that real strong sense of responsibility reinforced from an early age as a type one. Um, I think also I wanted to point out that you mentioned some of the arrow work to four, and I believe that you recognizing and feeling and appreciating your emotions. I mean, that's also part of the type four work for a one. Yeah, for sure. It's been so helpful um, to connect with my feelings because that's what tells me what I actually need and what mm -hmm. I actually want. Mm -hmm. And coming from that place is so much freer and positive than, you know, finding out like knowing what I want because I'm angry or I'm resentful, you know, that's how we know we are not in a good place. Um, yeah. yeah. So just, you know, being able to feel that. Um, and, you know, one thing that really was interesting to me as I started my work was that once I became in tune with resentment and anger, I was feeling it in my body. You know, I could mm -hmm. feel a corresponding, um, pain in my the right side of my stomach um, when I was angry or resentful. And um, sometimes then I would feel that pain before I knew that I was angry or resentful. Wow. And I was able yeah. to listen to my body and yeah. say, oh, wow, I'm feeling that. Am I resentful? Is there something going on? And then start tuning into what was going on um, mm -hmm. because of that. I love that. That's really indicative of that body intelligence that uh, eight nines and ones have. It seems recognizing, yeah. sensing in your body, yeah. uh, what your body's telling you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Christy, thank you so much for sharing so much of your journey with us and being so, so open and vulnerable. And even I know you mentioned a couple at one point that uh, you might be thinking about something later. I just want to encourage you to know that everything you shared was really beautiful and appreciated and uh, it seemed open and honest. And I think it's going to help people. So thank you for your willingness to do that. Um, is there anything else you might like to share with people who are just starting out on their Enneagram journey or their growth journey, or maybe they've just discovered they're a type one? Any thoughts for those people? Yeah, I think what I want to say is um, there is a path for you for transformation. Um, it's not always going to feel like this and be like this. Um, and the work is hard. And noticing things is hard, um, but it's so worth it because those tastes and experiences of serenity or holy perfection, you know, are just, they're just the best. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like when everything is all good in your body, you know, everything's at peace. Nothing hurts. There's no tension. Um, all is well. It's it's a really beautiful place to be. Um, yeah. So I just want to encourage you to, to um, 
to look at the Enneagram and use it as a tool for transformation. It's powerful. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up or do you feel complete with our conversation? I do. I mean, actually, no, I don't feel complete. We've got to go back through everything (laughs) (laughs) and re-talk about it and make sure that all... (laughs) Make sure it was all perfect. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. No, I really appreciated this conversation. Um, I had, you know, built this up a lot. And like I said, like I needed to show up a certain way and know all these things and... um, you know, and then just bring it all back to just showing up and how mm-hmm. I am and letting the experience um, itself be what's perfect, you know, that I'm yeah. not perfect. And so I think that, um, yeah, it's just a constant, you know, I'm just always learning this, you know, in a new way. And so I do appreciate you inviting me on and having me, um, the experience itself was inner work. And mm-hmm. I've learned about myself through this time. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate you. You're compassionate mm-hmm. listening and reflecting. It's lovely. Thanks Thank for you. Me. You're welcome. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. All right. So I loved that conversation with Christy. And I really, really, as I expressed in the interview already, appreciated her willingness to be open and vulnerable and even to experience some emotion in the process of our conversation. So what did you learn about type ones through this interview? And what did you learn about yourself? Did you notice any particular responses to the things that she shared? Any resonance or any strong responses in your body, your heart, or your mind? Other people can be really brilliant mirrors that help us see things about ourselves more clearly. And we all have personality or ego patterns at play in our interactions with each other. So get curious. Notice. When you notice a particular sensation, thought, or feeling, dig a little deeper. Ask yourself, what's going on underneath this? All right, so coming up in the next episode, we'll kick off the heart type interviews with a type 2 guest. I'll see you then. Take care. Take care.